Hello, beautiful people, and welcome back to the Sing When You're Losing podcast. I hope you enjoyed last week's episode with Liverpool-based boxer Jazza Dickens. If you haven't had a chance to listen to that yet, please do go back and listen to that and subscribe for all the episodes. I also hope you're looking forward to this week's episode with former Liverpool and Preston North End striker and Sky News pundit Neil Meller. Just before we get to that, though, I had the sad news this week. One of my very good friends had a colleague who didn't turn up for work one morning for a a Zoom call. He was later found dead at his house, having committed suicide, which was a shock to my friend and everyone else on the team. And I just wanted to say to whoever's listening, it's not too late. You can still get help if you're struggling, if you're going through a tough time, and lots of people are, especially now. Times are difficult. They're strange times. But last week with the Jazza Dickens podcast, you'll remember that he told us that when you're in the fight, the pain is a good thing. If you can feel the pain, you're still in the fight. And I just want to say that that goes for all of us. If we can feel the pain, then we're still in the fight, which means there's still hope. Whatever you're going through, there is still hope. I want to encourage you to reach out to someone. If you're struggling, reach out to someone, a friend, a close friend if you have one. If you don't, contact Samaritans. If you're not sure who to contact, contact me and and I'll do what I can to help you out and to pass you on to someone else but contact someone you can contact me through my email address which is buddy b-u-d-d-y at live or exist.co.uk buddy at live or exist.co.uk or all my social media channels instagram facebook with sing when you're losing or at live or exist make contact with someone anyone If you can feel the pain, you're still in the fight and there is still hope. I do hope now that you enjoyed this week's episode with Neil Meller. It's a great conversation. Uh, I really enjoy talking to Neil and I hope that you enjoy what you hear. Okay, everyone, here we go. It's time to learn to sing when you're losing. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Sing When You're Losing. This week, you may remember that the week before Jazza, we interviewed Chris Kirkland, former Liverpool player. This week, we have the pleasure and the privilege of Neil Meller joining us on the podcast, also a former Liverpool player. So last week, I was good with my promises of not just bringing Liverpool fans in. Jazza is an Everton fan, but uh, I, I hate to tell you folks, well, actually, I don't hate to tell you today, Neil Meller is with us. And yes, he is a Liverpool fan. Is that correct, Neil? Yeah, thanks for having me on, buddy. Uh, more than happy to talk about Everton, if you would like. But I am much more comfortable talking about Liverpool, the team who I have had great experiences at and the team that I currently follow now. Yeah, I would rather talk about Liverpool as well. So uh, let's just keep it. <laughs> let's just keep it to Liverpool then, uh, and maybe Preston, because of course uh, you spent a fair amount of time with Preston as well, didn't you? Good times, yeah. Good times, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Before we get into football, 
let's just talk a bit about what you're doing to keep busy during lockdown. So seeing when you're losing uh, is about helping people make the most of a bad situation. What are you doing to make the most of this situation? Several things. Um, try to keep busy. I, I think that's something that I've um, wanted to do to, to stop any kind of boredom creeping in, but that's inevitable. That's still there. So what I've done is, I think I've cleared pretty much every cupboard in my house. So, so far I've filled two skips and there's still several stuff which is still near, needing to be uh, binned. Whether I can get another skip, I'm not sure. I have also done plenty of exercise, which has certainly helped the mind a little bit more. I've got a cross-training machine, which I'm fortunate to have. And I've been knocking out five kilometers a day doing that. Um, and also TikToks, because I'm around the kids a lot more they're not in school i found a new platform which i didn't even know existed before and my teenage daughter has uh, encouraged and helped me get involved with a few dances on tiktok yeah i, I wasn't aware of tiktok either uh, but i am acutely aware <laughs> now uh, but i have to admit i i've i've not seen anyone do as many tiktoks as you uh, you're you're <laughs> popping up. You're popping up on my feed quite regularly on the TikToks. Are you enjoying it? I, I apologise, uh, buddy. That was not the intention at the start of lockdown. Lockdown it seems to be a Sunday thing. Um, yeah. So we've um, what we've what we've done. We're probably getting on for double figures, something like that now, which is um, all good fun. My little girl. It's a bit of uh, interaction with her. She is a good dancer. Um, but um, that, because I'm so used to football, buddy, I'm playing in the garden with a little lad who loves his football. It's uh, it's nice to do something a little bit different, and certainly my daughter has appreciated that. I'm sure she has. What I want to know is how you're actually getting your son to do it, because the whole family, <laughs> all four of you, are getting involved. But uh, I'm I'm impressed that he's doing it. I think he secretly likes it. Um, he's, um, yeah, he doesn't need too much persuasion, but unfortunately there is a little bit of a reward for him at the end of it, maybe an extra hour on the computer when it's his day to do that. Okay, so he's bribed to do it. Yes, sadly. At least it's family time, so that's good. We'll come back to football uh, in a few minutes and, and your kind of what you're doing today for a living now that you're not playing anymore, what your career looks like now. But before we do that, tell us just a little bit about your background. Where, where did you grow up? Uh, a little bit about your family. Yeah, uh, I was born in Sheffield, although I don't have too many memories there because I left at the age of five and moved to South Manchester, Cheshire, a place called Sale. That was where my mum and dad originally came from. So that was why they wanted to settle there. That was where I had my schooling, right the way up to the age of 16. And then that was when it became an option to be a football player. And that was when I took on the, uh, the, the Liverpool opportunity. In terms of family, I have a twin sister, which I'm pleased to say I'm four minutes older than. So I'm nice to, um, to get into this world just ahead of her. I have an older sister who's six years older, who doesn't really like football. And I have an older brother who is eight years older than me. And I was best man for his wedding and he was best man for my wedding. So we're really close. He loves his football. He's a big Sheffield Wednesday supporter and we are still very close today. Now, you haven't mentioned your dad yet. 
now your dad was a bit of a footballer as well. Is that what got you into football or did that sometimes turn you off football? What was it like growing up with a, a dad who was a professional footballer? I think, I think I was a little bit more fortunate and the reason being my brother's eight years older and my dad could learn all his lessons on him. Maybe pushed him a little bit too much maybe spoke to him in a way which didn't appeal for him to be able to make it as a football player because he never did. He only got as far as the Welsh Premier League. He never played professionally. So I think that helped me. But also my dad had finished his playing career when I was born. I was six months old when he retired from playing football. So I never really got to watch him or understand um, what it was for him to be a professional football player. But his advice has always been very, very solid throughout my career. From a young player, he has always been there, which is important, of course, to support me, but has also told me what I could have done better. So I, I, after a game when I was younger, I might have scored four or five goals, whatever it was, he would tell me an area I could work on. Rather than saying, oh, well done, you're the best player, he would say, maybe you could have scored more goals. And that was always a driver for me to, to want to get more better. Great. Was it always your dream to be a footballer? Is that all you ever wanted to do? It was. It was, buddy, yeah. Um, from, a, from a young age, I loved it. Just loved hitting the back of the net, scoring goals. Um, just wanted to be a professional football player. That, it was different back then. I, I mean, nowadays, kids grow up and, and they see perhaps the rewards. Back when I was growing up, I wanted to to score an FA Cup winning goal. I wanted to, to play um, in the top league of English football. I wanted to play for England. These were always the things that I wanted to achieve. There's no Champions League. That was that was never um, an incentive back then. As It was just to play professional football and um, and get to score winning goals. And that, that was the big uh, dream for me. I know, just uh, we've talked about it before, I know you're not a huge fan necessarily of the academy structure. You said when you turned 16, it suddenly kind of became available for you to, to play football. What was it like growing up for you, not in that sort of academy structure, but, but still, getting to, still getting the opportunity to go pro? And how is that different from what a lot of kids go through now? Yeah, I think, I, I don't know what the right and wrong way is, if there is one at all. Certainly it's for the individual case. I think. We'll, where I felt the benefit was, <clears throat> I loved football, absolutely loved football, but I could switch off from it when I went to school. School was very important for me to, to be able to study and focus, and there was no football. It was a case of having to do the lessons. I managed to get a scholarship at an independent school. I had to work extremely hard in my lessons, and when the time came to play football, that was when I really enjoyed it. Now, my problem I have with academies nowadays is they're allowed to miss school time, which I don't believe should ever happen. I think school comes first. And then I was training once a week and playing once a week. That was it. My dad wouldn't let me play twice a week. It was as simple as that. He felt as though it wouldn't help my body. So some weeks I'd be able to play for Man City, which is who I played for as a young boy growing up, uh, from the age of 10 to 16. And then other, other times I'd play for the school football team. So at 16, you kind of made the decision that you wanted to go pro? Yeah, that was, uh, do you know what, buddy, I'd been released at the age of 16 from Man City. Like I say, from the age of 10, I'd always been there at Man City thinking that is where I would get to live the dream of being a football player. They released me and um, it, that was a difficult time because I thought I wasn't good enough. Man City back then were 
were, were rubbish. They were in the third tier of English football, it's fair to say. They're not the force that they are today. So I wasn't good enough for them. So I played for England schoolboys. I scored five goals in a game. And pretty much every club in the country wanted to sign me, including Man City, having released me um, a few weeks earlier. So I was, I was no way was I going back there because they'd already said they didn't want me. And that was when the, the Liverpool opportunity came and, uh, and I impressed on trial. Scoring the winning goal against Man United helps, I must admit. Scoring Always a hat-trick well, yeah. next game against Newcastle helps as well. And then a three-year contract was on the table to, uh, to, to go and have an opportunity to try and live the dream at Liverpool. Were you always a Liverpool fan? No, no. Growing up, buddy, I was I was a Man City supporter. Again, maybe influenced by my dad, who had represented City um, in the early seventies, and uh, so that was my team of choice. And um, when they released me, that was difficult to accept, very upsetting. But then, when Liverpool gave me the opportunity, I was given some very good advice by Steve Highway. A lot of Liverpool fans would, of course, know Steve Highway is a great player for the football club. But he was a great coach as well. And he pulled me to one side and he said to me, if you want to succeed at this football club, Liverpool, one of the biggest in the world, you have to support that football club. <laughs> Regardless of who you supported in the past, whatever, Liverpool pay your wages. Support and fully commit yourself to this football club. And that will help you, not necessarily help you make it, but, but it'll help you get where you want to. And if you're not good enough at Liverpool, whatever football club you go to, support and commit yourself to that football club and that advice is something that I've always um, listened to and, and it's um, something that I've always um, took on board so from pretty much that day onwards the uh, affiliation towards Man City was was over and even today my, my dad's a big Manchester City fan but for me they mean absolutely nothing to me they en ended my football dream and Liverpool are the club that gave me the opportunity to be a football player so that is why my uh, affiliation is to Liverpool that is how it changes to some fans buddy they will never accept that you can support or change um, supporting but having experienced playing professionally it changed and it changed from one team rejecting me to one team giving me that opportunity and seeing what the football club was all about I really got to experience and see what Liverpool Football Club was about. As a young player, being around the fans, 2001, when we won the treble, the three trophies, being in and around the fans, singing the songs, absolutely brilliant. And then being on the pitch and, and seeing what it meant to the supporters, so that made a big difference and influenced my decision. That's, that's a great story. Do you think that that passion is missing from a lot of players these days because they don't take that specific advice. Do you think that's why players move clubs so often and, and maybe sometimes don't even excel as much as they could? Yeah, I think so. It definitely helped me. I think there'll be very few players who are playing in the Premier League that actually support the football club growing up. It's very unusual. Um, and like, like we see now in the Premier League, so let's Liverpool, you know, players that have come from all over the world, um, yes, may have known about Liverpool, but certainly wouldn't have, have supported the football club in, in big games at Anfield, that sort of thing, as a supporter. But um, the big thing is if you connect and commit yourself to whatever it is, your workplace, your football club, in terms of my example there at Liverpool, it does help you get a little bit more out of yourself and understanding also of the club you represent. And I'm a big, big believer in that. For me, one of the first messages of every football manager should be, this is the football club you represent and this is what it means to those supporters. Now, you need to learn about the football club you represent 
So when you go out there and play, you know what it's all about. Very good. So what clubs did you play for? You played for Liverpool. That's where you started your professional career. I then went to West Ham, big football club, on loan. Uh, didn't quite work out the way I'd have liked it to. A couple of managerial changes didn't go in my favour. I started with Glenn Roder, great guy. Trevor Brooking, played every game under Trevin. Well, Trevor, Trevor, sorry, great England legend. And West Ham legend. And then Alan Pardew came in and it didn't quite work out for me and him. He inherited me, and uh, so I came back to Liverpool. Wigan on loan in the Premier League helped them a small part, get to the League Cup final, and also the best ever Premier League finish for Wigan. I then moved to Preston, had six fantastic years at Preston, and then they had one year at Sheffield Wednesday. Again, my dad had played for Sheffield Wednesday, so there was a real affiliation to that football club for the family. So five clubs in total, two permanent, three loans. So in all of those years as a professional footballer, what was the highlight of your playing career? Cool. It's, it's nice to reflect and think. I'd love to sit here now with you and say, I've played 400 games for Liverpool. I've won this trophy, I've won that trophy. I can't. But what I can say is I've had a few moments and a few moments pretty much at every football club I represented, which gave me a high but also the fans who were there watching as well. So obviously one that stands out would be my debut, playing at Anfield on a cold Tuesday night in December. 45,000 fans were there. So that was really nice to get the opportunity. My mum and dad were in the stands to support me. I didn't score, um, but it was a, a great night to think. All the hard work, all the sacrifices along the way, this is what it's about. This is where I want to be. Um, but other highs along the way, scoring a goal against Arsenal, um, part of the 2005 Champions League success at Liverpool as well. Um, and a few moments at Preston as well, where I scored against big rivals Burnley and Blackpool, which the fans will always uh, fondly look back on me. A hat-trick as well, buddy. I scored a couple of hat-tricks at Sheffield Wednesday, which I've still got the match balls now, which are good memories. When... You speak to other people. So when I speak to my friends who are football fans, the, the Arsenal goal uh, is the one that they usually bring up. Oh, yeah, I remember Neil Mellor. He's the one that scored that goal against Arsenal. I, I know that's one of the big ones that you, you do talk about occasionally. I've heard you talk about that one before. <laughs> good memories. Good. Well, well, the thing, like I say, I'd love to say I've, I've achieved a lot more in my career, but and it was said by the football club, they said, I was one of the players to have represented the club, to have shook the cop. I gave the cop a moment that even now, what, 15 years on, some fans still remember where they were when they watched that game, which is uh, it's nice that they still remember and talk to me about that. Yeah, I saw that stat in the, in the top 100 of players who have shook the cop. That's, that's, a, that's a great stat, isn't it? I might be out of the top 100 now, but it was nice to have been in it. <laughs> Well, what I read said you were still there, so uh, <laughs> we'll say you still are. Those are some of your career highlights, and, and there are many. You scored a lot of goals. What would you say was the biggest disappointment of your career? Yeah, biggest disappointment would have to be retiring early. I felt as though I was 29 years old. I had more to give the game. I felt in the best mental state I'd ever been in. I felt as though I was the best player. I had been at that age and, and it came out of the blue, I must admit. It was a big shock when I had to retire. That was the most difficult thing to experience. <clears throat> yes, I managed injury throughout my career. That, that was a challenge. 
in itself. Um, there was bad games along the way. There was bad decisions that I made on the pitch. Those things happened. But for me, the big one was obviously having to retire through injury. Yeah. Who was the best player you ever played with? <clears throat> well, fortunate at Liverpool to, to have quite a few, to be honest. I was there with, I remember going back to Gary McAllister, Robbie Fowler. Obviously, the, the two that will stand out will be Jamie Carragher and Steven Gerrard. Yari Lippmann, and what a player he was. You know, he was absolutely outstanding. Michael Owen, goodness me, what a finisher he was. Um, <clears throat> so very fortunate, Jabby Alonso, to have played with so many great players. But I think the one that has to stand out is an obvious choice because he's one of the greatest players we've ever played for Liverpool. And, that, and that's Steven Gerrard. And the reason being, attitude, every single day, he wanted to be the best player at training. His standards were the best. So he's the best player, having the best standards. So there was no excuse for anybody else to have those standards. And uh, he was inspiring to be around. He didn't have to say a lot, unlike Jamie Carragher, who was more vocal. But, but his actions spoke a lot louder than the words. And um, he was a player who, for me, will go down alongside perhaps Kenny Dalglish, who's the greatest uh, Liverpool player. And it was a privilege to be around him for, what, four, five, whatever it was, six years around him seeing the standards he set and uh, and the attitude he had. It'll be no surprise that that's who uh, Chris Kirkland mentioned as well as <laughs> the best player that he had ever played with. So one thing I, I mentioned to Chris, it was just talking about leadership and you, you said that Stevie didn't really have to say a lot, but good leaders raise the standards of the people around them. So how did, how did Steven do that in your opinion? I think <clears throat> we all knew he was the best player. But he didn't let his standards slip, which could have been understandable if he wasn't feeling great for whatever reason at training. There was no, there wasn't fifty thousand fans there at training, but he still wanted to be the best. He still wanted to improve his touch. He still wanted to improve his um, his ability every single day. And for me, the leadership stood out because if. If I did have a bad touch, which which did happen occasionally, it, it, it expressed himself in a way without telling me off to say it needed to be better. And it was something simple like that. And it was like, yeah, if, if you're telling me it needs to be better, then I know that needs to be better. Little things like that. Um, but, but he was an inspiration to be around. And that's why so many players, in my opinion, wanted to not just impress the manager, wanted to impress Stephen Gerrard. I want to get the respect, the trust of Stephen Gerrard. Now, for me, I know I got that. Unfortunately, with injuries, I didn't get to show it more often. But Stevie, we got on and uh, and he, he trusted me as a player. Yeah, that's rare, I think, to have someone on your team that you think you, you want to impress that person. Not, yeah, you want to impress the coach, but to want to impress that person. I'm, I, I love Michael Jordan. I, I love great people in a sport. When, when someone plays a sport and when they make other professionals look bad, that's, that's when you know you've got... <laughs> A great player. That, that's what the great players do is they, they, they make other professionals look bad when they're playing against them. But when they're playing with them, they force them to raise their standards. And uh, Michael Jordan notably did that as he went throughout his career. It's great to hear that, that that's your opinion of Stevie G as well, that he just, he, just by being there, raised the standards.
and we were often told we looked similar, Woody. Uh, I don't know if you think there's a resemblance there or not, but several times we did. I remember being charged a double taxi fare once because he thought I was Steven Gerrard. And then there was another time when we went to Thailand for pre-season and we had this bus, which was a Liverpool bus. The, f the fans over there were fanatical. It was great to see. So we had this bus and there was four or five players' pictures on the bus, Michael Owen, um, it was Sammy Hippie, it was the, the main players, and then I was on there. I think they thought it was they were supposed to put Steven Gerrard on there, but they put me on there by accident. So we uh, we had a little giggle about that one back in that would have been what back in 2003 that was. So uh, yeah, we, we were told we looked quite similar. That's hilarious, and, and you do there, there is a similarity, uh, but I, I, won't, I won't discuss which is the better looking of the two. And I would offend, I would offend. All the, all uh, well, I wasn't going to mention who was the better footballer. <laughs> so, Stevie G, the best player you've ever played with. Who was the best player that you ever played with in training, but who couldn't quite do it on match days? Yeah, I think I've seen a lot of players come through the system uh, and get very close to, to professional level, first team level but fall down because of their attitude. Now, these players, technically, much better than some of the other players I've seen. And I'm talking about Liverpool, 16, 17, 18-year-olds, Preston, 16, 17, 18-year-olds, have the ability to have a career in the game, but do not have the attitude that will give them a career in the game. Now, it seems a bit strange to say that, but for me, I've seen so many players that attitude turning up late you're thinking what how why are you turning up late when you're not a first team player you've got no right to um sloppy standards for instance at preston not cleaning the boots properly you're thinking why what what are the shortcuts not running the full distance in training not moaning at coaches and you're thinking what what is wrong with you 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 have to do whatever you can to try and stand out yes as an ability but if you have the right attitude you may just well push yourself up the ladder slightly and it amazed me how how many players I saw with a bad, bad attitude and it didn't surprise me that they did not fulfil their potential as players. And they'll make excuses and say they never got opportunities, but it was quite clear to see their attitude wasn't right. That's, it's funny you went straight to talking about attitude. Again, Kirky did the exact same thing, started talking about the attitude of players. He also mentioned by name a couple of players, which I noticed that you very tactfully not done. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, uh, that they know themselves they know themselves <laughs> very good well done who was the uh, the best defender you ever played against well again going back to to Liverpool times I played against what will be recognised in my era as one of the best centre halves of world football now when I played against him he was playing for Lazio he went on to play for AC Milan I'm pretty sure he played in that 2005 Champions League final Italian defender Nesta was his name, played against him, and he was a very, very talented centre-half. In terms of the toughest, I felt was a Swedish centre-half. Felt as though I was playing against a brick wall. Every time I went near him, I was bouncing off him. He headed everything, he was strong, he was quick, and that was Melberg, a Swedish centre-half, plays for Aston Villa. Amazed he didn't play for anyone bigger in England, but I know he went to play for Juventus and was very good to know. Who was the best manager you ever played for in terms of man management? Yeah, okay. So, best manager was 
Rafa Benitez because he was the most successful and has been, has proved that. The most, the best man manager and Rafa, <laughs> if, if you look at Jurgen Klopp now, which we all do and we think, oh, I'd love a hug off Jurgen. It's brilliant to see he's hugging the players and everyone around him. Whereas Rafa, the best I got from Rafa, and we go back to maybe that Arsenal moment, a winning goal against the best team around in the Premier League was a little thumbs up in the dressing room. That was as good as it got. There was no hugs. There was nothing like that. There was no in, uh, singling me out in front of everyone saying, well done to you. It was just a little thumbs up. We caught eyes and, and that was his way of, of saying well done. But the best would have to be um, Alan Irvine. I had him at Preston North End. I had him at Sheffield Wednesday. He was assistant manager for many years at Everton under David Moyes. There we go. We got Everton into the conversation. He, um, he was a brilliant man manager because whether you were in the team, whether you weren't in the team, you look forward to going to training, which seems strange to think that. You're a professional football player. You should always look forward to going. Not always the case. You would look forward to going because the training sessions were very good. He treated you like an adult. He didn't dictate to you like a little kid. He treated you like an adult. I felt as I was getting better every day I went in there. And whether I was in the team or not in the team, I enjoyed every day under him. So that was a very difficult thing to do, but he achieved that. That's a great compliment for a coach. Uh, to feel that uh, you're treated like an adult, but that you're getting better every day and enjoying it. That's that's a fantastic yeah. compliment. Not e an easy thing to do as a coach. On Rafa, Kirk, you mentioned him. Now we live local to him. And if you see him around town, he's one of the nicest people that you could ever see. He's smiley and he'll chat to you and shake your hand. But as a manager, that wasn't the case. No, no not at all. He was... We didn't know a lot about him when he arrived from Valencia. We know he'd had success there in Spain to sort of break the whole Real Madrid and Barcelona domination. He'd won the league, hadn't he, at Valencia. Came over. English wasn't very good. Um, but he made you feel wanted. He made you feel part of it, which for me, I got, I, the best was got out of me from any manager who made me feel part of it. I want you. And he gave me that feeling. He didn't care about reputations no I like you and I want you to be involved and that was a big um, a big strength I felt as though he had um, like I say he was cold in terms of not wanting to hug you not wanting to be too to give you too much uh, pats on the back but he was meticulous to make sure you knew exactly what was needed of you when you put the shirt on on match day, where you needed to be, when you had the ball, when you didn't have the ball, how you needed to react. And that was something that I'd never experienced before. He was brilliant, absolutely brilliant at that. And, and even when I left Liverpool, it wasn't a case of Rafa shaking my hand and saying, thank you very much, good luck in your future. Didn't even speak to him. He told somebody else to speak to me and that was sort of the exit. Yet, like you say, we see him locally and it's great. I've had a chat with him and as good as gold. I've even interviewed him when he was Newcastle manager. I had to interview him after a game, which was which was quite surreal to do. But he was uh, he was professional with how he needed to behave, and then off camera, good as gold. And uh, and that's nice because he's he's a very good manager, but also he's per he's, he's personable as well, which is great to see. Yeah, he is. He is a really nice guy. Changing tack a little bit. Golf. Golf is, is big amongst footballers. Uh, you and I play together occasionally. Uh, as a matter of fact, don't think you've ever beaten me, but we'll move on from that. Uh, who is the best golfer, footballing golfer you've ever played with? 
the reason I've not beat you, buddy, is because you went one under for five holes at the end of the game. <laughs> uh, what was, was a four or five or whatever it was, you went one under. Bearing in mind your handicap is 18-19. I was in absolute shock. Um, so I should have beaten you that day, but I didn't. You you produce standards that I don't think the golf course has ever seen before in those final four or five holes. So, and, and I haven't forgotten about that funny bit. But um, yeah, maybe I haven't been here for a while. It's due. I'm due a win. Golfers, we love our golf and it's good fun. It's competitive. Our standard is nowhere near it, obviously. The big boys, I've seen some very good golfers, footballers. One that stands out would be a former Scotland international, played with him at Preston, Callum Davidson, who was a left-back. He was off, was he off plus one, scratch. He was, he was brilliant. And I played golf with him once. And after about two holes, I just turned around to him and said, Callum, really sorry, I'm rubbish, you're good. Just be patient. He said, don't worry about it. Let's just enjoy the day. He was really understanding and uh, and that was good. That made it more enjoyable. Callum Davidson, there's a good call. The other side of that, <clears throat> who is the worst golfer uh, that you've played with or, or, or at least who has the ugliest swing? Worst golfer would be Chris Curtin because on the team, <laughs> he says to me, <clears throat> he says to me, believe this or not, his handicap is 10. Now, Kirky was a member of a golf club and his handicap was four. Four years ago, five years ago. So for some reason, when he plays me, his handicap is not just double, it's more than double his actual handicap should be. And so that's why he is the worst golfer for that reason. Um, in terms of the swing, I played with a former teammate of mine at Preston, Chris Brown. Played at Sunderland, played at Norwich. Brown, he's centre forward. Really good lad. Took him down at Coldy, our, our golf course, of course. And down the 15th, he took it left of the fairway and had a shot to the green, but he was just behind one of the very small trees. So as he's gone to play his backswing and then play his shot, his golf club has actually snapped. And I've never, ever seen a golf club snapped on a, on a golf course, not even through anger. He's, as he's gone to hit the ball, he's hit the tree and snapped his own um, golf stick. It was just something that I've got it on video and I've sent it to him and said, how are you off 16 if you're snapping your golf club like that? It was ridiculous. <laughs> Very funny. Chris, you did come up in his conversation about golf uh, in the interview with him. I have to tell you, it came under the ugliest swing category. <laughs> uh, uh, particularly your putting. Uh, he, he had a, a, I'm not saying I may or may not have joined in, but he, he particularly talked about your, your putting and that you didn't use, you've never been a great putter but you didn't used to be this bad. So <laughs> what's going on with your putting right now? Well, I've got no idea. Do you know what? I, I have absolutely no idea. The putting, it's awful. It's absolutely awful. It doesn't help when Chris laughs at me. <laughs> I'm not sure that's the sort of conduct you want to see on the golf course, but he, yeah, he, he makes me aware of how bad it actually is, which can play certainly mind games during the golf, golf game. Yeah. You're not averse to the odd mind game, though, either, are you, to be fair? <laughs> yeah, I, I, uh, I enjoy that. It's all in good spirit. I, I don't do anything that I think is out of order, but I do like to sort of uh, get involved with the spirit of a, of a golf match. Absolutely, and why not? The podcast is called Sing When You're Losing. Now, 
we've said you had a great career. You scored some good goals. You've played with some great teams, some great players. But you also had quite a few in- injuries when you were a player, and, and you've alluded to the fact that that's what brought your early retirement. When you were in the midst of it, though, because your injuries started fairly young, uh, what kept you motivated and coming back for more? I think it was just the desire to be a professional football player, to to want to experience more moments. Now, now, I can honestly say to you, I don't think I was fully fit for any game in my professional career. There was always, I was, there was always an element that I was in, um, impeded with, unfortunately. But no one wants to hear excuses. When you're out there on the pitch, everyone judges you for being out there on the pitch. No one actually knows how good you, you do feel or don't feel. Um, so for, throughout those dark days of getting the bus at seven o'clock in the morning, outside Stanley Park, getting all the way to Kirby as a 17-year-old with a stress fracture in my back, thinking, will I ever play professional football? Making sure that I'm in early to see the physio, do all the right things. No shortcuts. Never, ever did I do a shortcut because I listened to what the medical staff said to me to make sure that I gave myself the best opportunity to be a football player and get to have a few more moments now. Like you say, those injuries. Stress fracture at 17, seven months out, couldn't run for seven months, having to be on the bike. Multiple knee injuries, seven... Um, surgeries I think in the end double groin injuries with a tendinopathy in there as well ruptured ankle which was a disgusting challenge um, as well what else was there um, I think that was it didn't get any muscles didn't get any calf injuries hamstrings nothing like that it was um, it was all pretty uh, full on injuries that, that, that I had but what what kept you coming back was just love for the game and Love for Love competition. Want to play. Want to play. Want to play. Want to live the dream. Want to get out there. Want to score a goal. This isn't going to stop me. Let me get out there. If I don't play at Liverpool, I'll play in the Championship. If I don't play in the Championship, I'll play in League One. I'll play in the Conference. I'll play where I just want to play footballer and get to, to be out there. And I guess it's just as a kind of a learning point for all of us, when we're struggling with difficulties like now during this crisis and you want to keep going, you want to keep motivated, having that element of your life that you love, whatever it is. So for you as a player, it was, it was football. Now, I don't know, it might be family or kids that, that keep you going. But you know how important is that having something that you love in order to keep you motivated? Yeah, I think it's really important, isn't it? Um, I think we all have our different interests, our, our different passions. Um, but I think it's good to focus on, on those because that's where happiness can certainly be created. Disappointments, of course, like I say, that I've experienced as well. But it's, it's that sort of um, love, desire to to look forward to something like football. So I can't play football anymore, but for me, I'm looking forward to when football returns. Can't wait to see the Premier League finish. Can't wait to see the Championship finish. League One, League Two, there's so much still at stake. And for me, that is a big um, interest that I have that I can look forward to and hope it will return. Yes, during this dark time, I'm around my family. I'm occupying my time, which I feel fortunate. You know, there's people that, that are on their own, which which of course will will find it difficult. Don't have uh, the family around them, 
but they have to find ways of looking forward to things and communicating, which isn't always easy. Um, and, uh, and, and trying to fill that structure and time in a way that is positive. Yeah. So I know you like to stay fit. You've talked a little bit about that. And I know you still love football. We've even played together once or twice. You do go against doctor's orders and get out on the pitch very occasionally. How much do you miss playing professionally? Yeah, players are different. Some players will say, I miss the buzz of the training ground. Miss it every day, the banter. I enjoyed that. But nothing will replicate arriving at a ground on a match day home away wherever it is and thinking I'm going to be out there and I've got the opportunity to influence a game where supporters are there maybe score the winning goal maybe do something that will give so many people that happiness and uh, and fight for the three points nothing will ever replicate that feeling of being out there on the pitch um, and that, that is the only thing I miss match day and the buzz in the dressing room afterwards of of knowing you've you've achieved that success three points getting a win absolutely brilliant just talking about that and that buzz uh, that is so difficult well and even impossible to replicate once you retire footballers the 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 issue of mental health within football has become massive uh, and and it's probably been pretty bad for a while but it's only been the last couple of years i guess where it's it's really come to the fore hasn't it do you know what i honestly believe that every single professional team they have a head coach for football they should have a head mental coach as well i, I think it is that important in the game and i think there should be as much time paid to the mental side of things as there is for on the grass time with, with the balls i really believe that I felt as though I got the best out of myself as a player through seeing a mental coach, a psychologist, at the age of 26. I felt as though I was sat on the bench, buddy, yeovil away for Sheffield, for Sheffield Wednesday. And I was looking around at Hewitt's Park thinking, what am I, what's going, I'm on the bench at Yeovil, what's going on? I came on, we won the game, I, I won a penalty for us to, to get the win. And after that game, I was like, this isn't on, I'm better than this. So I saw a psychologist and... From that moment onwards, got a couple of hat-tricks, which I'd never experienced before. Um, and then I, I scored one in two, pretty much till the end of, of my career, from focusing more mentally on that mental side of it. So I'd listen to a CD, drive into a game. What do I need to do? Now, I wasn't always a, a great performance, but I was a much better player through being mentally prepared and more tuned in than I had been throughout my career. And, and it was that important to me. Now, some players react differently to that. Some players have it naturally, that, 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 mental, um, that mental toughness, that resilience in them. A lot of players don't. A lot of players really struggle. And an example would be, played in the game for Sheffield Wednesday once. It was actually a game where Harry Kane scored his first ever career goal for Leighton Orient. That was his first career goal. We were losing one and we had 3,000 travelling Sheffield Wednesday fans away at Leighton Orient. And they were singing, you're not fit to wear the shirt. Now, I could handle that. That's fine. No problem to me. But the problem was, there's 11 players in the team. And there was five, six players who did not want the ball for Chevy Wednesday. They were like, wow, they're singing that to me. Don't give it me. I, I don't want the ball. And then when they got it, they were scared and kicked the ball away. And we did do things that 
their ability is, is not what they're capable of. We got beat 4-0, and that was a great example of that mental side of it where they struggled to deal with the, the pressures and the reaction from supporters who, who were not happy with how the performance was going. So there are a couple of, I guess, a couple of different issues uh, here that, firstly, there's the, once you retire, the issue of trying to recreate that buzz. So a lot of the mental health issues from former players are arising because they don't know how to create that buzz anymore. You know, they're not walking out in front of tens of thousands. And so... You know, that's uh, turning to alcohol or relationships or gambling or whatever, trying to to recreate that buzz. And then there's the issue of the current players and just the pressure from fans in the ground, but also through social media now. Uh, the the constant input on social media that that players are having to put up with. So, how big of an issue is this in the game? both of these issues and how do players overcome that do you think huge i think it's a huge issue where the support needs to be there for every fo- football player um current and former you talk about former there there's when you come out of the game every football player has been in the game since the age of 16 they've been told where to be when to be and all they have to do is turn up and they're paid very well for the, the talents that they have um, when they come out of the game Nobody wants to know who you are. When you're a player, everyone wants to know who you are. And then all of a sudden, the structure's gone. You have to create your own structure. You have to um, find money yourselves. You have to start from the bottom again and, and try and start again. From being, you finishing at the top or wherever you have finished to, um, to then having to start again is a big dent to when any of the egos. You have to focus on what you can do rather than what you can't do, which is very difficult for a lot of players when that dream has been taken away from them. Um, so that's former players. And then current players, one of the best bits of advice I was given was at Liverpool from Sammy Lee. Sammy Lee called me into his office and he said, do you think I like you? What was I, 19? Of course, well, you've, got no, you've got no reason to dislike me at all. So I was like, yeah, yeah, I think you like me. He went, some advice for you. No matter how nice you want to be or behave, some people will like you some people won't like you it is regardless of how you behave that is the natural way things are in life stop trying to get everyone to like you and i was like really he was like yeah that, that's the way it is and i think for some players there is perhaps a surprise element that they're thinking why, why are some people criticizing me i don't understand why they're being so negative why they're being so horrible well it's because some people will like you some people won't like you and it doesn't matter what you do or your behavior you have to accept that and and you can't change those people so um i think social media can have an effect where the players don't realize that some people won't like them stop trying to get everyone to like you that is impossible to achieve in life um so just um Try and control what you can control and not focus on those negative people. Yeah, controlling the controllables. Now, you know about these issues quite well, not because you've necessarily lived through them all, but because of your role with the PFA, the Pro Footballers Association. So tell us a little bit about your role with the PFA. Yeah, the PFA are the Professional Footballers Association. So to some people who have seen a lot of negative headlines about the PFA in recent times, mainly because of Gordon Taylor, who is the chief executive. He is the person who is um, 
very good for all football players. And if you ask any football player, what does the PFA do? Some players will know, some players won't know. Well, every player has a contract. There's 32 pages in a player's contract. And the only thing they'll look at is the last two pages. Why? Because that says how much they're going to be earning a week. That, that's what it is. That, there's your terms. That's how much you're on a week. The other 30 pages are all conditions which the PFA have fought for to make sure the player gets paid on time, to make sure he gets paid when he's injured, to make sure that he gets paid when he's playing rubbish, to make sure that he's in conditions that are acceptable for, for the football players. These are all things that I think a lot of players take for granted, yet the PFA have fought for over years and years to give the players that strength of contract. Now, if you go to a different country, let's say Greece, Turkey, for example, if you don't play well, you probably don't get paid. That's how the contracts aren't as strong in various other countries. So that's why the PFA is so strong in this contract in this country they, they sort out the contracts they sort out so many different areas they retrain players post-career but also the mental well-being is so important at the pfa and they are improving that area all the time getting um, more and more people to help so many players who are coming to seek for that advice and uh, and the pfa are very open to, to try and improve in that area to help the players so what are some of the things they're doing to to help with the mental health of the players now? So they have a counselling service, which is um, confidential. The problem a lot of players have that are struggling, and like I say, from a young age, players have, done, have had everything done for them. So they don't have to do anything. Players struggle to make the phone call, make that first communication. Well, why, do I have to, why do I have to make that phone call? The PFA are there. The PFA don't ring the player the player has to have the confidence have the the urge which is difficult to want to ring and make that first step which is very difficult but the pfa are there that's that's the most important thing that the players know but making that step is hard now if they don't want to make the phone call they still have an online um communications as well so they don't have to make the phone call you have the social media aspect where they're giving advice regularly about how they can certainly help themselves in times like this as well. So the communication element is certainly there and the players know they can use that. What would you say to fans who say, you're paid a heck of a lot of money to do what you do, stop whining and just go and play? Well, they'll never, I don't think there'll be any sympathy from, from supporters for, for players earning that sort of money that is astronomical. It's, um, it's, it's something that a lot of people can't comprehend. And even coming out of the career, out of the career now, I'm thinking, wow. So I think what I was on in my playing days is, is something that players will never, ever earn again when they come out of the game. That's that's the way it is. Um, players live to the means. So they will live to the means, whether they're a Premier League player, Championship player. So then when things are altered, that's when the big problems start to happen. Mental ones are the big ones. So if you're earning, let's say, a £1,000 a week and you come out of the game, and you're not earning that. You're living to your means. How do you pay those bills? How do you live the same lifestyle that you've become accustomed to and really, really enjoyed? That can be a big, big difference and uh, and something hard that players struggle to adjust to. So the fans won't have the, the sympathy. I understand that because why would they? When they're not earning that sort of money. Um, but the players still have challenges if they don't manage it in the right way. Yeah. And they're still human. I think that's what we often forget as fans. You know, you see these people and they are making crazy amounts of money 
but they you are still human and you, you still go through the same issues as everyone else money doesn't fix your issues does it no I think that's that's what a lot of people have. You know, you look at whether it's footballers or rich CEOs or whatever, and you think, well, you've got money, therefore you don't have issues, and and that's just not fair because you're still human. I think this virus is a good example of that because people, no matter how much money people have, you're not you are not untouchable to things like this. So it's a reminder that health and happiness have always, to me being the most important things. Of, of course, we, we would all like to go on nice holidays. We all like to, the, the, the nice things in life, which money can buy, but health and happiness, in my opinion, comes before that. Yeah, they're different things. And, and through Sing When You're Losing and Live or Exist, my business, that's what I'm hoping to do is help people to realize that, that happiness doesn't come from how much. It, it comes from an inner sense of fulfillment that it's harder to achieve. It's it's easier to make to make money sometimes than it is to to find happiness, isn't it? No, I agree with that. Yeah. So, what advice uh, would you give to people right now who are going through this difficult time and are struggling with their mental health? I would say um, communication is important. I would say speak to the loved ones, the people that you care about in your life. Um, if you if you can't see them, of course, try and keep in touch. Whether it's a text, whether it's a phone call, whether it's a FaceTime, whatever means you have possible to try and stay in touch. Try and occupy your mind and keep yourself busy. You know, for instance, what I've been doing: exercise. If you if you can't run, walk. If you can't um, walk five miles, try and walk one mile. Try and challenge yourself in different ways. Set yourself little targets. That's what I try and do. Try and clear your mind by helping tidy up your house. You know, it could be a drawer that you think you need to tidy that up. Little things like that, that. They're the things that have helped me in this time. Now, unfortunately, I've got the kids as well to occupy my time. But they're some of the things that, if you don't have kids, that have helped me as well. Read a book as well. I've read, I read Graham Sooners' book, which I really enjoyed. I know uh, he gets a little bit of stick from Liverpool fans. I've enjoyed reading that. Um, there's a sports psychology book, which is very deep, which I have to read about each page three times to try and get it to sink in. And then uh, there's also a Preston book, which I've been reading. So I've been trying to keep busy that way as well. Have you read Kieran Dyer's autobiography? No, no, I haven't played against Kieran. Yeah, really good. Uh, something, I can't remember the title off the top of my head, something like old, too young, smart, too late, or something along those lines. Uh, really, good really good. good yeah. Again, had, had injuries, had the world at his feet, and we don't know why he didn't quite achieve perhaps what he looked capable of. Uh, maybe, maybe some answers in that one for, for us. Yeah, yeah, really good. And finally, where can people find you to follow what you're doing? Not just TikTok, uh, but can follow your career <laughs> and, and uh, the life of, of Neil Miller now. I have a Twitter account, which I'm always certainly promoting any work that I'm involved in. Instagram as well, loads of pictures. I put my pictures on from my playing days, from my family, my family time. Also my dad's playing days, a couple of cracking pictures I found from my dad's playing days. If you have Sky Sports, put it on for a soccer Saturday or a soccer special. I will report from any ground up and down the country, tell you who's scored, who's not scored, who's missed. And uh, and also LFC TV. I can uh, I lucky to analyse a few of the Liverpool games, which uh, I really enjoy doing as well. Because Liverpool are top of the league, and we've won more games than we've done that. 
Neil, it's been a real, a real privilege and pleasure having you on the podcast today. Great to have your friendship and uh, to, to be able to, to contact you anytime. And just in closing, uh, you know, when I, you said a few minutes ago, have someone that you can call, that you can talk to. Uh, when I interviewed Chris Kirkland a couple of weeks ago, you were that person for him. Uh, you know, he said, when, when things are getting tough, I know that I can, I can call Neil and speak to him. Uh, so you, you know what you're talking about. You know how to be that person. And we all need that person in our lives. So well done. And thank you for coming on today. Thank you for having me. And I look forward to beating you on the golf course soon. Well, don't get your hopes up, mate. (laughs) (laughs) Have a great day and have fun TikToking with your family. Thank you for listening to this episode of Seeing When You're Losing with our guest, Neil Meller, and me, your future-proofing coach, Buddy Owen. Please do share this episode and subscribe to Sing When You're Losing wherever you listen to your podcasts. Also remember, if you're feeling low, if you're feeling down, do your best to find someone to talk to, someone you trust. That first conversation can be the hardest, but it could also save your life. So do please get in contact with someone. Look out for next week's episode where I will be interviewing uh, former player and current manager at Tramia Rovers, Mickey Mellon. And don't forget this week, whatever you're going through, don't forget to sing when you're losing. Have a great week, everyone.